Last week we began a series on the book of Jeremiah stating that the reason for studying in this book at this particular time has to do with the parallel between the situation to which God through Jeremiah addressed himself in the nation of Israel and the situation that we find ourselves in today in America, uh, that uh, Israel was rushing headlong to its destruction, or Judah, the southern kingdom, was. Uh, Israel having already gone in that direction. And uh, God, through Jeremiah, uh, warns the nation and pleads with the nation to turn and uh, pronounces the coming judgment and the reason for the present setbacks. And as Francis Schaeffer says, the message of Jeremiah is precisely the message that we as the church need to be proclaiming to our people and to our nation today. The first chapter dealt with the call of Jeremiah. In this second chapter, we have the Lord raising various questions. We have questions here addressed to the nation of Israel, but uh, does he not address these same questions to our nations and to us as individuals? A few questions from your maker. The first question uh, is found in verse 5, and he asks, What evil had they found in him that they had forsaken him? Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? He reminds them of the way the relationship started between the two of them. In verse 1, he speaks of their earlier love for him. And the first three verses, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go, and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase. God says, I remember how it was when you and I first began to walk together. I remember your kindness, and I remember your loyalty and your trust, how you went after me in a land not sown, a wilderness, trusted me to lead you to a promised land. I remember that Israel was holiness to the Lord. You were zealous. Now, of course, uh, we don't have to read very far in that Exodus event to realize that Along with uh, the following, there was a lot of rebelling, and along with the loyalty, there were many lapses. But God looks back, and he remembers Israel at its best, and he remembers the best of the nation. And truly, there were men and women in that nation, Moses and Joshua and Caleb and others, who walked with the Lord and who led the people in that direction. What about our nation? If God were to say to our nation, I remember thee in the kindness of thy youth. Remember how it was with uh, those who founded America, those pilgrims who left England and came here, and their great desire to serve the Lord according to the word of God as they understood it and the dictates of their conscience and how they were willing to uh, 
undergo all manner of privation. As they trusted the Lord, as they uh, sought to serve him, they were holiness unto the Lord. America was holiness unto the Lord at its beginning, just as Israel was, in a real sense. His previous blessing on them is spoken of in verse 6. It says, Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt? And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. God blessed that nation in the beginning as he fed them with angels' food, manna from heaven, as he guided them with the pillar uh, and the cloud, as he led them into a promised land, a land of milk and honey. God defeated their enemies and drove out seven nations mightier than they. Think about the beginning of our country and how God was with us and how his hand was so evident in our history as uh, this nation became an independent nation. George Washington said, Any man who can understand and know the history of that Revolutionary War and not see God's providential hand time and time again intervening on our behalf simply is blind. God's blessing. What nation has ever been blessed like America these past 200 years? God's blessing on our nation. But then, uh, their present defection, in verse 7, the last part, And when ye entered, ye defiled my land, and made mine heritage an abomination. The priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. The defection, no longer a faithful bride, but Judah having turned her back on the Lord. The people defiled the land. The priests were unconverted. The pastors, meaning rulers of the land here, transgressed. The prophets, the teachers, prophesied by Baal, false idols, false value systems. How is it with us in America? Have we defiled the land? There's a verse over in Numbers chapter 35 in verse 33. So she shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit. We defile the land when innocent blood is shed. We pollute the land. The land will vomit us out, to use a biblical phrase. There's a verse in this second chapter that doesn't really say uh, isn't really directed to abortion, but which certainly is a good phrase to describe abortion. In verse 34, 
Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. The blood of poor innocents found in the skirts of the people. What more apt description of abortion. Jesus Christ, in the womb of his mother, came into the presence of John the Baptist in the womb of his mother. John was six months older than Jesus. John the Baptist, we're told, leaped for joy in the presence of Jesus. The babe leaped in my womb for joy, said Elizabeth. Jesus is Jesus, John is John. Jesus at best could not be more than two months old at that point. Had Mary had an abortion, would she have been shedding innocent blood? Would she have been shedding Jesus' blood? Does that not defile the land? In many cities and communities in the United States this past year, there were more children aborted than were born. The second most common operation in the United States was abortion. The most common operation in the United States was tonsillectomy. I led a medical student to Christ eight years ago. He's now an obstetrician. He was in town this week, and he told me of going to a meeting of obstetricians just recently, and hundreds were there. And the one obstetrician was lecturing, and he told how a woman came to him, and she was pregnant, and there were various complications, and there would be complications with the birth. It would be a problem, and it would be expensive. And he told her he would only handle her case if she would agree to a therapeutic abortion. And everyone applauded. All of the obstetricians applauded. And my Christian friend wept. What's happened? What's happened to the medical community in that area? What will we do for money? Do we worship a false value system there? The woman's pleasure and the physician's money? It defiles the land. Ordination. The church is not a lot better, the institutional church. It said the priests didn't know God. I noticed the other day where a major denomination ordained a professing and practicing lesbian. The priests did not know the Lord was the situation in Judah. Education. The leaders prophesied by Baal, the prophets and the leaders transgressed. What is the situation in the area of those who instruct? Those who lead in the field of education. I was reading an interesting book recently, Textbooks on Trial. Not too long ago, a farming couple in Texas had their high school son come home and asked them to read his high school text, history text. 
And they said, son, there's nothing wrong with the history text. You study it and you make good grades. He said, I don't really think that you would like what I'm studying. And they kept putting it off. And finally he said, won't you read it? And they consented to read it. And they were horrified. And they began to see what they could do about it. Talk at the PTA. They found out who approved the textbooks in the state of Texas, the largest purchaser of textbooks in the nation. And uh, they went to the committee meeting when the legislative committee uh, would be approving the textbooks. And they began to protest, and they underwent tremendous persecution in the process. But they hung in there. And they, over a period of time, got book after book after book stricken because of what was in these books. To give you an example of what the Gablers found. In a federally funded National Science Foundation program for the fifth grade, 1972 edition, Man, a Course of Study. One simulation game was to be played for a week. The victor had to procure enough seals to provide for his own survival. He could only do this by starving his co-players. The lesson that the price of surviving is killing was reinforced by a story of an old woman left to die on the ice because she was no longer useful to her society. The word for this was senilicide, a term impressionable fifth graders were expected to learn. She included this story. Uh, Ms. Gabler included this story as she was describing the book. After looking at textbooks for 11 years, I thought I was unshockable, but this wins the prize for being the worst. Fifth grade children at an age when they're most impressionable and curious are led to, quote, discover the lifestyle of the Netsilic Eskimo tribe of Canada. And what do the Netsilic practice? Cannibalism? Infanticide, murder of grandparents, wife swapping, mating with animals. The most degrading things you can imagine. And what is the teacher to say about all this? She is not to make a value judgment. The children must decide with the clear implication that if the Nixilics want to live this way, then these crimes against God and nature are all right. The whole idea is one culture is as good as another and that the values of no cultures are absolute. In the textbook, Many Peoples, One Nation, Random House, 1973, we're taught about our American heritage like this. No nation on earth is guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than the United States at this very hour. Go where you will, search everywhere, roam throughout all the kingdoms of the old world, travel through South America, search out every wrong. When you found the last, compare your facts with everyday practices of this nation, and you will agree with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America has no rival. In the Justice in Urban America series, Youth and the Law, the book is filled with Many pictures of youth fighting, stealing, defacing property, violating the law, taunting law personnel. Ms. Gabler's comment to the legislative committee, I think there should be more showing of people upholding the law. 
at least half the picture should show something constructive for youth to do instead of something violent. In Macmillan's Search for Freedom, 1973, a history book, <clears throat> she called it a sexy history book. If you will turn with me, she said, to page 386, you'll see the same picture of Marilyn Monroe that was on the cover of Life magazine. Marilyn Monroe got six and one-half pages in this fifth-grade history, while George Washington is only mentioned five times. She said, I don't think so, but I'll just ask, is Texas ready for Marilyn to be the mother of our country? Uh, the... Other books, Holt's Introduction to the Behavioral Sciences, The Inquiry Approach, 1969. Quote, We find that children who are taught obedience, respect for rules, and parental authority are prejudiced children, whereas a child who is disobedient has no respect for authority or his parents. Doing whatever he wishes is not prejudiced, but develops basic ideas of equality and trust. Again, uh, as they do this exercise, the student should be developing the concept of cultural relativity, the idea that rightness, goodness, or badness of a particular kind of behavior can be judged only in terms of the culture in which it is found. For instance, is it bad for people to eat the flesh of other human beings as people do in a few societies which practice cannibalism? Why does this seem so horrifying to most people in our society and so natural to people in those societies which accept the practice? Why do many people in our society find it reasonable and logical to cook people in electric chairs after they've committed certain kinds of crimes? Cook them, but not to eat them. One final quote, or two more. Here's a text on uh, the child and the republic. Quote, Dr. Hoffman blames society for the ills of the homosexual underground. Society, he maintains, by its prohibitions and laws, makes homosexuals' behavior abnormal. In other words, he is saying it's not so much the act of the homosexual uh, that causes grief, but instead the laws that prohibit it and the society that finds it repugnant. In a book, Psychology for You, 1973, published by Oxford Book Company, and Mythology and Modern Man. On the other hand, myths may give a picture of the world of having fallen from a perfect state. The evil of the world, according to these traditions, resulted from man's failure to obey the will of God. And it is only by following the will of God that the world can be restored to its proper state. This is essentially the mythological standpoint of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and many other religions. A great many myths deal with the idea of rebirth. Jesus, Dionysius, Odin and many other traditional figures are represented as having died, after which they were reborn or arose from the dead. 
as our nation turned its back on God, defected from its original attitudes. One young man who sold such textbooks one day could take it no longer, walked into his company, said, I resign. I can no longer be a part of what you're perpetrating on the children of this nation. I quit. Now he's in Reform Seminary. We support him. We're helping him go through his ministerial training there. But not only should we apply this to our nation, but to ourselves individually. What about us? God says to Israel, do you remember how it was at the beginning? He says to America, do you remember how it was? Your early love, your first love. He says to you and me, do you remember how it was when you first began to follow me? Do you remember your commitment, your sold outness, your willingness to burn your bridges behind you? You didn't care if people thought you were anti-intellectual or fool. You wanted to serve the Lord. You'd witness. Do you remember how it was? Have you maintained the keen edge of that, or have you backed off when you ran into uh, the fact that uh, people didn't like that kind of stance? What have you done? You know, the Lord uh, redeemed them from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, but he's redeemed us from hell by the blood of his Son. And he gave us the gift of salvation through simple trust in Christ and surrender to Christ if you're a Christian. And he says, what evil do you find in me that you now have turned away from me? Where have I let you down? Where have I been a hard master to you? Why have you left your first love? Now, the first question, do you remember? The second question, what profit have they found in forsaking him? In verse 11 of Jeremiah 2, Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit? He says, Verse 10, Pass over the isles of Chittim, Greece, and send unto Kedar, the nations of the east, and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. No nation who worships false gods has left its false gods. But he said, You worship the true God, and yet you have left him. What profit have you found in the departure? Has it been profitable? Have you been blessed in departing from the Lord? He gives an illustration, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Think of a man right next to a fountain of bubbling fresh water, and he leaves it, and he goes digging cisterns and drinks out of those dirty, vermin-infested cisterns the water that he can pick up through the ground or off of roofs or whatever. And it's a broken cistern anyway, and it won't hold water. So it is with everything that we turn to rather than the Lord for meaning, for purpose, for value. When you seek to find true excitement and joy in the things that the world seeks after, you're seeking it from broken cisterns that can hold no water. He raises the question of why they were being spoiled. In verse 14, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? No, Israel was set free by the Lord. 
freest of all nations. But now Israel's being spoiled. The young lions roared upon him and yelled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitants. The northern kingdom was experiencing all this. And uh, Judah was beginning to. Why? If they really belong to the Lord, why is he spoiled? Why doesn't God protect him? How could one chase a thousand except their rock had sold them, asked the Lord elsewhere. God has withdrawn his protection because of their sin. Verse 17, Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, when he led thee by the way? What about America? What profit to America that we've turned our back on the Lord? Are we being spoiled? How is it that we're experiencing so many military setbacks when from nation it was, for years it was just victory after victory after victory? How is it that our economy is falling apart when it in the past has been such progress? How is it that there's such inflation? How is it that uh, there's an energy crisis? How is it that the weather just sets back our nation so terribly here recently? Are these things by accident? Do you realize that this is due to your forsaking me, says the Lord? God calls it spiritual adultery when we do this. The application to ourselves. If you've turned away and lost your first love and you're experiencing problems, do you realize what's happened and why? A businessman in our church was sharing with me how he was in a Bible study group, and another businessman raised a question in the group. He said, I'm on the verge of bankruptcy. I've had one problem after another. Can any man here tell me why this is? Here I am, a Christian. If the Lord's really with me, as, as the Scriptures say, why am I experiencing this? And this businessman said, Could it be that it's because... You've been dishonorable in your business practices, as he knew he had been? Could it be that you haven't paid your obligations as you should have, as he knew that he hadn't? Could that be it? And the man had no answer. A third question. How could they deny that they had forsaken God? Verse 23. How canst thou say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. The tendency to self-justification, how prevalent it is in America and in our own lives as it was back then. And he has a bill of particulars that they have worshipped false gods. They've been like an animal in heat in their spiritual adultery. Can we deny that as a nation we have used science as our God or education as our God? or materialism as our God, instead of seeking to serve the true Lord and have Him as our God. And haven't we done the same thing as individuals? Put success ahead of a walk with the Lord, a popularity. The final question, what would they look to to save them? In verse 28, where are thy gods that thou hast made them? Let them arise, made thee. Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. Verse 29, Wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye have all transgressed against me, saith the Lord. 
In vain have I smitten your children. They have received no correction. To whom will you run? What's the old spiritual? Run to the rock to hide my face. The rock's going to say, no hiding place. Run to the sea. Sea, won't you save me? The sea can't save you. The mountains can't save you. Where are you going to run? In that day when our enemies come flooding in because the Lord has abandoned us. Where are you going to run when you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day? I was reading a book entitled, Yes, Virginia, There Is a Hell, written by a Baptist pastor in Montgomery. He went to a college retreat, and the kids all wanted to ask questions about hell. If it's real, why don't we hear more about it? If it's not real, then let's quit having any reference to it. But if it's real, why don't we hear more about it? The silence on the subject of hell bothered them, in particular a girl named Virginia. And so he went home and researched it. Wrote her book, Yes, Virginia, There is a Hell. He said he himself tried to get away from it. It's a hard saying in Scripture, and he didn't want to believe it. He didn't want to preach it. He wanted to be a universalist, say everybody's going to heaven, but he said, I couldn't. He said that no reason seemed to be sufficient to deny the reality of hell. Perhaps most people just wish that there would not be a hell. What prompts a person to believe in hell? The answer is simple. The clear teachings of God's Word. Yes, Virginia. Yes, Frank. Yes, Mary. Yes, George. There is a hell. Where are you going to run on that great day? We see the questions from our Maker addressed to the nation, addressed to the individual. But there's an invitation, praise God. Love is wounded and love cries out. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Isn't that true? Married a girl yesterday. Could she forget her attire, her wedding dress? And she looked forward to that. No way. But my people have forgotten me days without number. Love is wounded, and love expostulates, but love invites. And that's very important because as we move on in this book, love ceases inviting. It's too late. There's a deadline that we can cross where the invitation is no longer extended. And that happens as you move through this book of Jeremiah. And you'll see where he tells Jeremiah to stop praying for this people. It's too late. But here in the opening chapters... The invitation is still extended. Chapter 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north, and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not Obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. And I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you pastors, leaders, according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Turn. 
The way back is to return to the Lord. Ask Him to help. Ask Him to forgive. Turn to the Lord. Renounce, confess our sin, and turn from it as a nation, as individuals. And He will renew. I will restore. I will forgive. I will heal your backslidings. I will give you pastors according to my heart, He says. And He says, don't wait for others to do it. One of a city, two of a town. You do it. Don't wait for others. You do it. I will bring you to Zion. I will bless you. You will be a part of my heritage. Where does it begin? How do we turn back as a nation? It begins with a high school boy going to his folks and say, Look at this. Look at what I'm studying. It goes with a farming couple going to the state legislature and saying, We don't like it. We don't like what you're doing to our children. We don't like the way you're running our nation. And we're not going to stand for it. It starts with one and two and three. It starts with a book salesman saying, I'm not going to sell this garbage anymore. I don't care if it's cost me my job and money. I'm not going to do it. It starts with a judge downtown this past week saying, no more pornography in Birmingham. That's where it starts. One judge, one couple, one youth, you, me. That's where it begins. Right there. It starts with the individual doing what he can do. It starts off with a group of churches leaving one of those denominations that's turned its back on the Lord and setting up a new denomination like we did. That was a strong thing for the nation. And God's blessing. It begins there, always with the individual. It begins with you. It begins with a dentist in our church, leaving his practice, going to Washington to witness to the congressman. It begins... Well, the congressman listening to that dentist and bowing his head and inviting Christ into his life and then going back and standing up for Christ in Congress. That's where it begins. What about it? Do you hear these questions? Do you remember how it was at the beginning of the nation, of your own walk with the Lord? And do you realize the problems and the cause of them? Uh, can you refute the incrimination? Why not admit it? Where are you going to run? Why not run to Christ now? Go to that fountain. Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come to me. And I will give him the water of everlasting life. Out of his blood shall flow rivers of living water. He gives eternal life. If you backslidden, go back to him. Return to Him in repentance and trust. Renew that walk with Him. Go to Him and say, Lord, I want it to be like it was at the beginning. I come back. So many backsliders that never had anything to backslide from. They never were converted to begin with. Start there. Go to Him and say, Jesus, I thirst. I'm tired of these broken cisterns. I want the fountain of living water. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I trust you. I surrender to you. Start there today. It begins with one and two. Let us pray. As our hearts about, resolve in your heart to pray for this nation and to do what you can, like the farming couple, like the youth, like the dentist, like the book salesman, to do what you can to make an impact, to turn this nation back. And if you backslidden from the Lord, acknowledge that. Tell him you do remember and you do repent.
you do renounce those ways and you do return right now. And if you've never received him, start there and pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I want you in my life. I want that fountain of living water. I come to you. I'm thirsty. I drink. I surrender to you as my Lord. I trust you as my Savior. Come into my life and begin your work in me. Amen.